I did a lot of work behind what is the difference between vulnerability and oversharing. And vulnerability is let me share something that I've gone through and what I've learned. And oversharing is let me share something really hard that I haven't processed yet. And I want you to still pick me. It is always super exciting to have authors on the podcast, uh, on the show. I love, as an author myself, kind of hearing the the author journey. Uh, it's it's a special one, and and uh, we often are in a position to be able to welcome authors. Today's guest is a particularly special one, uh, not just because of who she is and what she stands for and how she shows up in the world. But also, she is actually actively in the middle of the book authoring process. So we get a little bit into if you've ever wanted to write a book, you're going to get kind of a little bit of behind the scenes on how that all came came together. Actually, it's coming together presently for uh, for her as she's writing that book. But uh, as I said, just such a, a voice for uh, compassion and good in the world, and uh, she's doing doing it all on social as an authentic, real human. It's, yeah, I mean, this episode today is awesome. We talk about so much, but I think the crux of it all is really just how we show up. And of course, our guest today shows up in the most amazing ways. She is Tiffany Yu, CEO and founder of Diversability. On top of being a business owner, as we'll get into in the episode, she's also a content creator. Daniel, as you mentioned, a soon-to-be-published author. She talks a lot about that as well. And we didn't even dig into the vast majority of her accomplishments. It's insane. She's also a three-time TEDx speaker. She was named a 2021 TikTok API trailblazer, um, has spoken at the World Economic Forum annual meeting, uh, and that's on top of, oh, she also has her own Wikipedia page, which is rad. Um, But also, too, just the conversations we have today are so real and so genuine and it's really just a human episode and i i love this episode daniel yep me too uh before we get into it we are excited to bring you our show sponsors for this episode and all social pros this year icuc hey there social pros listeners i'm erica from icuc joined by my colleague katie from icuc and we're both strategists here We're really excited to talk to you a little bit more about real-time opportunities that come up within your social communities. We know conversation is actively flowing, and as a brand, it's more important than ever before to be paying attention to those conversations. But how quickly do you respond? Is it important to respond? All of these things are really important questions that brands are asking today. And Katie, can you talk a little bit more about why it's so valuable for a brand to be jumping into real-time opportunities within their channels? Absolutely. So there's that component of brand heat, some people call it, uh, your cultural relevance score. You know, we all have some of those uh, aspiring brands that we all want to be like as far as jumping into real-time trends and things like that. But the real-time opportunities for brands of any size are really important because you're nurturing that community and you're showing them that you're there and you're participating in conversations that you have every right to participate in. So you can identify those through social listening opportunities, social, social listening platforms, uh, and even some native platform searches to see what consumers are talking about and depending on your brand's industry and service, being able to join in, it increases your impressions and consideration. So it's worth it. 
Yeah, Katie, I couldn't agree more. It's just so vital. Consumers now more than ever really want to feel like they are part of a community, like they're part of something, they're being acknowledged. And we can't recommend community management enough. And really, truly to be on 24-7 is really the nature of that world in today's day and age. But if you're interested in community management, if you're interested in being responsive, please talk to the experts over here at icuc.social. That is what we do every single day. We're extremely passionate about it. Head over to our website. Again, that's icuc.social and back to social pros. Social Pros listeners, one of the things that Daniel and I consistently talk about off air is just how lucky we are to be able to chat week after week on the show with the most amazing and talented people in social media today. And of course, today's guest is no exception to our gratitude. But I'm going to be honest, like so many of you, I can get really bogged down by the negativity of social media. And sometimes I even get a tad bit cynical about it when it's really overwhelmingly negative. But then, of course, we have a guest come along like our guest today, where they remind me of just how unbelievably powerful these platforms can be in connecting people and just reinforcing all of the good that is still within social media. So without further ado, I am so excited to introduce Tiffany Yu, CEO and founder of Diversability. Tiffany, welcome to Social Pros. It is so great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So you wear a ton of different hats. So as we just mentioned, you are, of course, a business founder and owner. You are a social media creator, a public speaker, an advocate, soon to be published author. Congrats, by the way. We're going to dig into that a little bit more. And we're going to touch on all of those things today. But first, for those who may not be familiar with your story, would you mind sharing a little bit with us and just helping our audiences really understand you a little bit better. Sure. So I am the youngest daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant, my dad, and a refugee from the Vietnam War, my mom. And I was born and raised in the U.S. And at the age of nine, I was involved in a car accident where my dad unfortunately passed away. I acquired a slew of injuries, including breaking a couple bones in one of my legs. I was in a wheelchair for four months. I permanently paralyzed one of my arms, my dominant arm, my right hand. And much later, I would be diagnosed with a mental health disability called post-traumatic stress disorder. And I I specify that trifecta of injuries because I think a lot of people don't consider mental illness as a disability. Um, It is. uh, It impacts the way our our minds work. And for 12 years after the accident, as the daughter of Asian immigrants, it had been instilled in me through through our culture, that we shouldn't share anything that might make our family look bad. Because if our family looks bad, it means that we have bad luck. And that means that any other family wouldn't want to associate with us because we would rub our bad luck off onto them. So in my family, that meant that the car accident was bad luck, the fact that my dad passed away was bad luck, and the fact that I now had an apparent disability, my paralyzed arm, was all bad luck. So I internalized that we shouldn't share it with anyone. So for 12 years, I didn't talk publicly about the car accident. I wore long sleeves all the time. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and if you have spent a summer on the East Coast, it is really hot and humid, and I was still wearing long sleeves. I think wearing the long sleeves and hiding my arm transcended my comfort during the summer. 
that's kind of the, my lighthearted insertion into that. Um, I told everyone my dad was away on a trip. And other than my elementary school classmates who knew about the car accident because I was away for three weeks in the hospital and, and four months as I was relearning how to walk, uh, middle school, high school after that, no one really knew about the car accident. The turning point, I don't know if there was a turning point, but um, in my early years of college, I started a Taiwanese American club, maybe in honor of my dad. And that's actually the first time I'm saying that out loud, but I didn't really acknowledge my Taiwanese American identity until I got to college. So I started this Taiwanese American club and my senior year, I said, can we do the same thing we did for Taiwanese American students, but for disabled students? And that was actually the beginning of diversibility. It wasn't me thinking I'm going to become a disability advocate or like, I want to share this traumatic story with people or like, I want to talk about my disability. It was like, I did this club. I want to start an. we started this club. Can we start another one? So I actually think it is interesting that my Asian background actually inspired so much of the work that I do, even though in my cultural upbringing, so much of it was kind of shrouded in, in shame. Um, so, so much of what we do now is what I call the shame to pride transformation. So helping our disabled community members self-actualize. But after they've gone through that transformation, I want to help accelerate them. So I want to get them featured on podcasts. I want them featured in press. I want them to get speaking engagements to really build their thought leadership and validate that their story matters. Because for a long time, I felt like mine didn't. Thank you so much for sharing your story, not just with us here today, but with people all over the world, shedding light for others who are going through similar stories and similar backgrounds and situations and using social media as that platform to really bring people together, especially people who need need to be brought together and and are looking for just a way to tell their story. And you were so unbelievably open with your story. So first, just thank you again for that. The other thing that I really appreciate is, again, you sharing just everything that you've been through. There is so much of social media, especially I think creators feel this pressure to only talk about the achievements and the accomplishments and show sides that aren't real. And you are all about showing the real side and not just all about showing the real side, but advocate, advocating for what is really real. Can you talk through when you started to really share your story, what that looked like in terms of how it resonated, people's reactions, and sort of the reaction that you got just from everybody? Yeah, I mean, I remember the first time I, so I'm really into dates. So car accident, November 29th, 1997. First time I shared the story publicly of the car accident was October 22nd, 2009. And I remember that date so clearly because I had gotten invited to speak on a, a student panel. So I was still in college at the time on a student panel around disability and, a, and, and potentially a disability studies certificate on, on the graduate level. And the first time I shared that story, I cried. Um, I actually don't think I could, I could get through the whole story. And one of the things that I think is, I, I have to put an asterisk in the story. So Brene Brown has this quote around how our stories are a privilege to hear. And when you meet someone, you ask yourself, has this person earned the right and the privilege to hear my story? And sometimes our stories have trauma in them and, and we don't, you know, we want to be 
respectful of people's boundaries and their comfort levels around how much they want to share. I share mine so openly because I will never forget those 12 years of feeling, I guess it was like (laughs) self-silenced, of feeling so silenced and diminished in that story. But then it also made me realize how many assumptions other people made because I didn't share. So many people assumed my injury was from birth. They didn't know. I call it like compounded grief of like, I lost a loved one, my body changed, and also the loss of childhood innocence, the fact that this happened so young. And yeah, I think that by by me not providing the context, it just enabled other people to make assumptions about my experience. And I wanted to own, I wanted to own all of all of the aspects of my story. So 2009, I don't know. And, and I remember the first couple of times, even after that, to that October 22nd, 2009 moment, I, I noticed that I continued to share the story and have, have a really hard time emotionally getting through the story. And I think it was two things. I think the first is that the story is sad. You know, sometimes I watch old videos of myself recounting the car accident and I even get a little teary eyed. And then I'm like, wait, that person is me. Um, And I get sad because I just can't believe that something like that would happen to a nine-year-old. And now, I mean, I'm turning 35 this year. And many, many of my friends or a couple of my friends have kids who are nine. And I meet them and I'm like, I can't, I can't see this kid that's right in front of me spending three weeks in the hospital, losing a parent, four months in a wheelchair, like go and then not being able to tell anyone about it for 12, for 12 years. So I think that was kind of the first emotional response was, I feel really sad. There's a lot of pain in this story. But behind the tears also was, I can't believe I'm being given a microphone for people who actually want to hear this. And I think about the number of people, whether or not you're in the disability community or not, who have just feel who feel like our stories don't matter. So I think when I started to gain a little bit more confidence in sharing the story was around 2016 timeframe. I don't have the exact date, but someone had gifted me a copy of Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. And I will say it took me about eight or nine months to read the whole book because every single page had a mic drop moment around leading. And to me, my takeaway was the power of leading with vulnerability. And starting in 2016, I started to get, and again, this is, you know, seven years after I first shared the story, I I took a little hiatus and was working in the corporate world and and not doing advocacy work full time and not having to share the, the story of the car accident so frequently. But in 2016, I, I started to, uh, I, I incorporated diversibility as a business. I started to host uh, events on the side while I was working for, while I was at working at this company called Revolt, which was co-founded by P. Diddy. So I was still working full-time and then doing diversibility as like a meetup group on the side. And in 2016, I read this book, Daring Greatly. And I started to get really curious about what it would look like if I was if I led with vulnerability. And I've done a lot of work. So I want to asterisk two things. I know I'm asterisking a lot of things. So one thing I want to asterisk is that I've also done a lot of work behind the scenes. And I am not, and yeah, and I think that that part is really important. Like I I got diagnosed with PTSD in 2019 that that's 
over 20 years after the accident, but got treatment, you know, am now more aware of kind of how to manage that and what that looks like behind the scenes. Um, And I think that I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge, like, I don't go on to social media to heal. I go on to social media to share what I'm learning alongside my healing journey that is happening behind the scenes. And I do get a little bit nervous. uh, So that leads to the second asterisk, which I did a lot of work behind what is the difference between vulnerability and oversharing? And vulnerability is let me share something that I've gone through and what I've learned. And oversharing is let me share something really hard that I haven't processed yet. And I want you to still pick me. And I will share in full transparency that in 2009, I think I was doing the oversharing part where I hadn't done the healing work in the background. But I am also grateful that in my cultural upbringing, like therapy was not was like was not a thing like mental health, mental health support was non-existent. Like my mom's a refugee, you know, and um, and and it was interesting. She actually and I'll say and sorry, I can ramble on. I'll say this one last thing. She, she came to me and she goes, Tiffany, I'm depressed. And I go, oh, do you need to go to like therapy or, or something? And she goes, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you just told me that you were depressed. And I was like, that to me is a microcosm of still in my mom's generation, how mental health is viewed. Because for me, if someone says I'm depressed or I've experienced something traumatic or, you know, I'm really processing my grief. Now I know and I have the tools to say, what type of support system do you need? Um, Is therapy accessible to you? If it's not, how can we help you build your support system or find free or subsidized tools? So a lot of context there, but and some asterisks, but I do think that those were important to share because I like to show up on social media vulnerably, but I also have a lot like when we show up on social media, we're curating content. And I think I want your listeners to understand that it's just not being like, here's everything that I'm going through. And I hope that you still follow me and that you pick me. It's like, hey, I'm doing the work too. And I hope you're doing the work too. I, I think you, uh, I mean, I love asterisks because the, it always gives us a moment to come back to and, and think about and reflect on. So uh, I love your your use of them. Uh, I was kind of taking some notes while you were even saying them. Uh, but one, one of them I, I wanted to kind of come back to you is the, the, this note uh, about, uh, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough line and it's a sometimes very fuzzy line of what is vulnerability versus oversharing or, or sharing something that isn't ready yet for others to hear. Uh, I did some uh, workshop a few years ago, uh, presumably about public speaking. It was kind of the, the point of it, but a lot of it, a lot of it was uh, there was discussion around, you know, what stories are you ready to share yet? And uh, some of the things that we, in, you know, myself and and others who were part of the workshop would begin sharing a story or a moment. It it was just clear it wasn't ready for them to talk about because it's still too too raw or too fresh or they just haven't kind of processed it all. And that also means the story isn't ready for an audience yet. It isn't ready for others to hear because uh, it's difficult to find the context for it when you hear that. Like, what am it? How how am I? How can I help? this person or how can I be part of their journey? Uh, so I, I think uh, it's a lot of self-actualization for you to kind of reflect on it that way. Um, but truth be told, I, I think, you know, you you show up so, uh, I use the word authentically, I 
almost don't want to, but you you do show up so real on on your own social channels uh, through uh, through all of them. So I I think you know clearly have done a lot of work, but I think also as a as a member of kind of your your community, it, it's impactful to kind of see how you are showing up because it is helpful to see you talking about things that matter to to so many people. And, and, and I guess my my question in there is. At what point, uh, I, I think in in our the notes you had shared with us before uh, our our show today, you talked about LinkedIn being kind of a an important branch of your your social media journey. At what point did you realize that? What kind of it could be a TikTok thing, it could be an Instagram thing, and I, I know you're on those channels as well. But you know, LinkedIn we we don't hear as much about people kind of using it in this way. Uh, so I'm curious what that that realization process was for you? Yeah, good, good question. And interestingly enough, LinkedIn is my fastest growing platform right now. And I, I want to say August 2021. August 2021, Diversibility launched a swag camp or a merch campaign where, have you seen those, those shopping bags that say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, have a nice day? So we did our version that said disability, 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 disability is not a bad word. And I shared a photo on LinkedIn of me wearing that sweatshirt. And it went LinkedIn viral. I don't know what viral (laughs) looked like on LinkedIn. But to me, that was probably my most well-performing post that whole year. And shortly after that, someone from LinkedIn reached out to me and said, hey, I'm a creator manager at LinkedIn. Would love to chat with you about your creator journey on the platform. And prior to that, LinkedIn to me was my brag platform. It was just kind of like, hey, I've been featured in this article. I'm on this podcast. I'm, you know, and I even think your, your producer reached out to me on LinkedIn. So, so there's something that's working on there. But shortly after that, you know, and, and it was so fascinating because I think the LinkedIn for creators page, like the LinkedIn page has only been around for a little over a year and it already has a million, more than a million followers on it. So this was the beginning of LinkedIn looking, I think, at itself as a creator platform. And so as now that I had a creator manager, I was like, ooh, someone at the company cares about me creating content on this platform. And I started looking at LinkedIn a little bit differently from a brag platform to let me share some experiences that I've had because I can only use one arm and I worked at Goldman Sachs. In investment banking, I was top of my class typing, you know, (laughs) typing, making pitch books with one hand. It's possible. Then I worked for P. Diddy. And then like now I'm doing this whole full time just exploring the multi hyphenate life, like full time disability advocacy. And I think maybe there might be some interest there if other people want to pivot or if people want to learn how to be advocates within their companies or how to you know, or to show that disability employment works on the corporate level. So I will say what really sealed the deal for me is in October 2021, LinkedIn announced that they were going to launch something called a Creator Accelerator Program. And they were paying each person at least $15,000 to post on LinkedIn for a 10-week program. I don't know about you. I mean, there are a couple other creator programs out there. I've done ones that are 
as low as 1500 to 2000. I've done ones that are 7500. I have I had never seen $15,000 before to be a creator. And it also signaled to me that well, I guess it signaled that LinkedIn has some money. But it, but it also signaled that LinkedIn really wants to invest in their creators. And so I applied for the program. Actually, my submission video for the program is on LinkedIn. I recorded it at the airport, like right before I was about to board. And I, and actually, I was surprised I got accepted. And then a friend reached out to me and he's like, Tiffany, you seem to get a lot of these things. Like, how do you do it? Because he had applied as well. Um, and so for 10 weeks, uh, we had to post at least four times a week. One of them had to be a video. And then we also had to do the project that we had proposed in our original 90-second video. And one of the other things I realized is that LinkedIn is, it's known as like the professional network. So if you're creating on there, people who have the potential to hire you are also on there as well. Um, the other thing that I've really appreciated is that there are so many disabled voices on LinkedIn as well, sharing their experiences in the workplace or different guides. But what's also cool is I have friends that I have known for many years who out of the blue, one of them shared their vision disorder that they live with and they have to wear a special type of glasses um, related to their disability. And then I have another friend that I think I've known for 10 years or almost 10 years who posted about being hospitalized for her mental illness. Um, and then I'm like, these stories belong on LinkedIn as well. Like people need to know this aspect of, of us. And the two people that I just mentioned who came out of the blue sharing their disability stories have incredible careers. One of them, you know, worked in, in entertainment and the other one is, a, I don't, it works at some big tech company. You know, they're, they're building their careers. They're not full-time disability advocates. And I think to, for me to be able to start to see that trend on LinkedIn makes me really hopeful. Agreed. It's been really refreshing seeing some of the more human sides of people on LinkedIn, because I think, you know, typically in LinkedIn past, people would be like, this is my professional accomplishment. Look at my award, which is fantastic and still very celebratory and worth, you know, worth recognizing. But, you know, Tiffany, I think to your point, the more that we can see coworkers and professionals and people as the actual whole people that they are and see sort of different sides of them and understand them better. We can gain more understanding of just our coworkers in general and, and, and just, I don't know, we don't have to be just taskmasters focused on like doing a job. We can actually show up in authentic ways. And again, like Daniel mentioned, I hate that word authentic, but totally agree and love, again, just appreciate your approach on how you show up because as we've already talked about, how you show up on social media has made massive monumental impacts in the advocacy work that you're doing and raising awareness. And specifically, I would love to talk about, not to shift away from your LinkedIn efforts, but a incredibly successful campaign. And I'd hate to even call it a campaign, but the fact that you actually created the hashtag anti-ableism short form video series which has seen more than 4.5 million plus views and counting. This again goes back to how you show up. Can you talk us through a little bit behind that series and really how you were able to show up and the reaction and, and really what it was all about? Yeah, the the update is now it's over 5 million. Um, and honestly, if you asked 
2009 Tiffany, who was starting a disability club, if I got 10 people to join my club, I was like, I'm feeling great. And the fact that we have reached millions, like I can say we've reached millions is beyond beyond my wildest dreams. So the series, the series was inspired by a friend, Nicole Cardoza. Got to give credit where credit is due. And Nicole started a newsletter called the Anti-Racism Daily. And she started that in, I believe, May of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. And a bunch of people were coming to her, asking her, what can I do? And she's like, well, what I know how to do is start a newsletter. So here I was on TikTok. <laughs> so not on, not on a newsletter. But I was creating content every single day on TikTok uh, during that period of time. And I, I had originally joined TikTok through, through a creator program, kind of like the one LinkedIn did, but it was called Learn on TikTok, and it was about creating educational content on the platform. So after the program ended, I was trying to figure out how I could still, how I could keep myself accountable to continue making short form video content. So I came up with the idea to create an anti-ableism series. It was originally called the Anti-Ableism Daily but I couldn't keep it keep up with it daily. Um, and in the first couple of ones, I gave credit to Nicole based on her newsletter. And I thought, she knows how to do a newsletter. And I'm like, I know how to make short form videos. And so in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, not only were there a lot of questions around what does being anti-racist look like through the lens of intersectionality, I was getting a lot of questions on and in July of 2020, it was the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So that was a big milestone as well. So these two events kind of in the same year, within months of each other, a lot of people were inviting me onto their podcasts who had mainly done diversity, equity and inclusion work through the lens of gender equity and racial equity, but hadn't thought about disability status, disability identity. Um, and that was the first time I was like, oh, like, why am I being invited on to your podcast to talk about all to talk to all these like diversity, equity and inclusion professionals? And then I'm like, oh, wait, like this is an aspect of it. And so the question that people always asked was, how can I be a better ally to disabled people? And as of this recording, I think we're over 220 parts to that series. All of that to say there is no one way to be an ally if you as podcast hosts are asking me how to be a better ally, it's can you make sure that you include transcripts for the conversations um, or on your audiograms um, or are they called waveforms? I, I, I don't know. There's there are there many on your so on your social assets. Um, but if I'm talking to someone who's a hiring manager, it's a different conversation around how can we make your, you know, your job description more inclusive or uh you know, how can you really prioritize hiring a disabled person? And uh, how can we also look at some of the stats that are out there too? So, so yeah, so that's why there are over 200 parts, you know, feedback on the series. I think, I think what was interesting was I first started it so that I could keep myself accountable to making more content. I've gotten a book deal out of it, as you mentioned. Um, I don't know if the series was entirely, um, but it's all in the same terminology. Um, and I also think what's interesting is that I used to host, I used to host a, uh, a clubhouse room called anti-ableism, anti-ableism real talk. 
And one of the, and we, I would bring together a bunch of my disabled friends and we would talk about different topics. And one of them was around ableism. And it has, and in 2021, it had, most of us had only been starting to use the term ableism to describe the type of discrimination or bias or the subtle things that were happening to us. The term ableism has been around for such a long time. It just hasn't really been in our consciousness, right? And I even think it's fascinating if you go online, even if you go onto TikTok, though people misspell ableism still. Uh, so we don't even have like, you know, I'm thinking about SEO related to this book that's called The Anti-Ableist Manifesto, and we're going to have to like include all the misspellings in there as well. But but yeah, it's like the term ableism has only come into our consciousness um, or more popularized in the last couple of years. And our understanding of anti-racism and now anti-ableism is also, I'm, I'm hoping, starting to come more into consciousness, which is why I chose that because a lot of people will look at anti-ableism and they're like, oh, I don't know what that term is. And hopefully they get curious enough to want to tune into the clubhouse room or, you know, I was hosting it also on Twitter spaces or want to tune into the series. And then you see it's at part 220 and then maybe you'll want to go and consume uh, some of the other parts of the content as well. I think now is also the perfect time because we didn't do this at the top of the show to remind everybody that you need to go follow Tiffany and everything that she's doing right now on all of her social channels, of course. Um, as she mentioned, you can find her on LinkedIn. You can absolutely find her on Instagram and also on TikTok. And also to everybody's Social Pearls listeners, going back to what Tiffany was talking about with allyship, it's also the perfect time to go visit mydiversability.com slash allies because there are so many resources there for you right now on how to become a better ally and how to show up in the ways that we need to as allies, um, starting with social media. There are accounts to follow. There are hashtags to follow, um, especially hashtag diversify your feed. And then also, of course, going and checking out Tiffany's series, the hashtag anti-ableism. And of course, make sure you spell that correctly to find all of those videos. Um, so everybody go there right now, follow every follow all of uh, the channels with Tiffany because um, it's really, again, it's about showing up. So Tiffany, as you had mentioned, you are going to be a soon to be published author. I know um, just from hearing from Daniel, um, Daniel has published two books, uh, that this is a monumental effort. So can you talk a little bit more about how this book deal came about and where you're at in terms of the writing process. Yeah. So the word that comes to mind is serendipity. So in May, I'm going back to my dates. May of 2021, someone named Charles comes into my contact form. And I don't know if you saw the, the post, but it's pinned on my the Instagram, the announcement of the book deal. And then when Charles reached out and Charles works at a place called serendipity literary agency. And he reached out and he said, hey, Tiffany, I found out about your work through Dr. Jenny Yang, who runs an Instagram account called Agents for Mental Health. I uh, wanted to get in touch with you if you had been thinking about writing a book. So I got into a call with Charles. And one of the first things he said was that the publishing industry upholds white supremacy. Um, 
And when he said that, I was like, and and he talked about like how there there are now initiatives to try to get more writers of more published authors of color, um, try to maybe demystify the the publishing process. And when he said that, I was like, I think maybe you understand <laughs> what you you understand. Um, and he had been working in the publishing world for for a long time, so. I gave the green light on working with Charles. And when he said, have you thought about writing a book? I said, the short answer is no. I've got too many things going on. You know, my content is, you know, my social platforms are really growing. I just started doing more speaking engagements. I'm only now starting to figure out how to support my advocacy, how my how I can continue to do my advocacy work and support my livelihood. Um, and I will also share that up until 2020, I was like on and off unemployment. Um, I was Airbnb out my apartment. I was upselling furniture on Craigslist. I was selling jewelry. I was doing like kind of the scrappy entrepreneur stuff to figure out how to get by. And and so, yeah, I mean, the emergence of the creator economy, being able to like start getting paid in these creator programs to start doing brand deals like that has been significant for me. And that has honestly really only happened since 2021. So I I just wanted that's another asterisk just to say, like, I don't want to forget that journey of like many of us are privileged to be able to do the advocacy work because monetarily, a lot of times it it hasn't been able to support us. But now with social media and other things like that, it can't. So short answer to Charles was, no, I haven't been working on a book. But I did remember a letter that I had written to my guidance counselor when I was a senior in high school. And again, when I was a senior in high school, I still wasn't sharing the story of the car accident publicly. I think my counselor knew. Um, But I said, you know, one of these days, I think I want to write a book. And maybe it's going to be about this, the the things that I've learned, but I don't know what it's going to be about yet. So I told Charles that high school Tiffany had this dream of writing a book. But right now I just, you know, didn't didn't know or have the capacity to write a book. So he said, I want to represent you on a book called Diversibility. And I said, well, if the book's going to be called Diversibility, then to me, it's going to be about that shame to pride transformation and maybe a collection of stories of our community members. So I started drafting that up. I don't know if you want the the full book publishing journey, but in fall of that year, uh, 2021, a publisher reached out and said, hey, I noticed a lot. I like a lot of the content that you are putting on LinkedIn and these other platforms around disability in the workplace. Have you thought about writing a book? So I connected the publisher to Charles, my literary agent, and we started putting a proposal together, which ultimately became the Anti-Ableist Manifesto, which was all about kind of disability allyship. That publisher, I think, uh, actually they were waiting, actually everyone was kind of waiting for the proposal. Um, So slowly but surely, I was, or slowly slash very slowly, I was working on the proposal. And in 2022, Ashet reached out with a preemptive offer, which means that the proposal wasn't fully complete. And they said, we're going to offer you this amount of advance. And hopefully that is attractive enough for you to want to say yes and and not send this proposal out to anyone else. Um, and I think we had sent out the draft version of it that, again, still wasn't complete. Again, most proposals are like 
maybe like 50 to 80 pages or something. Daniel, maybe you know, because you have to include a sample chapter in there, a detailed table of contents. And, and so honestly, I feel very grateful because in talking to different editors or people who have done books before, this is kind of an unprecedented, not unprecedented, maybe this will start being more of how the process goes, but it's just very rare that a literary agent would reach out to someone who didn't have a book. Um, but he also reached out to a couple of my other, so most of the authors he represents are, are Asian American, Pacific Islander. So he did reach out to a couple other people. And I noticed that all of us had strong brands that we were building. So the idea was that our first book would be tangentially named similar to the brands that we were building, right? So that's why he was like, I want to rep you for a book called Diversibility. So where is the book process now? It's going. I had set some small milestones for myself. The manuscript is due sometime later this year. And I'm not as far along as I would like. One of the things that I'll share that I did for the proposal is it's much easier for me to speak than it is for me to type long amounts of text. And one of the things I'm learning uh, about my disability is there's something called overuse syndrome. So a lot of people fixate on my paralyzed arm, but effectively my now my no formerly non-dominant hand has become my dominant hand and my non-dominant hand for the past 20 years. So I am experiencing a little bit of fatigue. So one of the things I did as we were putting the proposal together was I recorded it. We got a rough transcript thanks to so many speech-to-text transcription tools now, thanks to the pandemic, thanks to accessibility. Um, and that's how we ended up putting the, the proposal together. And so in that same vein, I'm also imagining some hybrid form of me writing it out, but also me speaking it out. And this is also kind of how we make the book process accessible to dip people who have different ways of writing books, right? So, um, so that's that's where things are. Not not as far along as I'd like, but we'll get there. <laughs> and I and I hope that you will support uh, when the book comes out sometime in 2024. Uh, support it, of course we will. We will. Uh... We will asterisk this and come back to this conversation in 2024. So if you're listening, uh, you know, don't be surprised when you hear us talk about this again, because we, uh, I ex I'm excited to see it. I always love uh, uh, hearing authors' book journeys. It's ugly and awful, and you're never feeling, you never feel like it's, it's complete, uh, even after it's published. Uh, I sometimes have difficulty looking at, uh, at the books I've written and, and opening them. It's like, ooh. It's like watching video of yourself almost uh, to to a point. So uh, I know know what you're going through, but uh, excited for what's on the other side of it. And congratulations. That's really that's really great. I'm excited and nervous at the same time. Uh, as you should be. Uh, it gets more exciting and more nerve wracking the closer you get to submitting that manuscript for sure. Um, this has been a delightful conversation. We may, uh, of course, welcome you back on the show to talk about the book maybe in 2024, too, if uh, we can find a way to fit it in your schedule. Uh, I think you're going to be pretty busy uh, out promoting the book, but we'd be delighted to to kind of have you back and talk about the stories and all of the uh, uh, the framework that, that you're putting together for it. Uh, in the meantime... Uh, as Anna mentioned, please go follow Tiffany on all of the social channels. And she is uh, just awesome at, at using them for good. And I think it's a good reminder of how we can use social for good and be 
uh, able to help each other show up in, in the ways that matter most. Um, we Before we let you go, Tiffany, uh, we, of course, have to ask you the same two questions. We've asked all 550, are closing in on 600 guests uh, on social pros. If you feel ready, I've got question number one for you. All right, let's do it. All righty. Question number one, of course, uh, if you could give a piece of advice to anyone who wants to become a social pro, what would it be? I'm trying to think of like some advice that isn't just start posting. Um, but but yeah, I I think I'll just say post. Um, I did get a piece of advice from someone around like if your TikToks, if your TikTok videos aren't performing well, the best thing you can do is post more TikTok videos and then you'll get more views because you're posting more content. I think my advice, though, would be to try to create content that sparks conversation. You'll notice that at the end of a lot of my posts, I will ask a question. Sometimes no one answers it uh, and the comments are more just cheering me on or messages of support. But I always love I always just love seeing not only having the opportunity for me to engage with my audience, but also for them to engage with each other. Yeah, it is so essential to create conversation. It's it's amazing because even though that is one of the sole purposes of social media, uh, there's still so many creators out there, so many brands, um, so many people just doing blasting messages and doing one-way conversations. So it's always a good reminder. And I think even those who do create conversations um, still need to dial up the conversation making ability of some of their content. So absolutely love that, Tiffany. Always, always, always a good reminder. Of course, Tiffany, your second and final question before we officially let you go. Um, if you could have a video call with any living person, who would it be? You know, the first person who came to mind was Mindy Kaling. And that's mainly because I'm watching The Mindy Project right now on Netflix. It, it has returned. But I just think that she has blazed so many trails um, in, her, in her sphere. And she just seems cool. Yeah, absolutely. I saw her at a content marketing world. She seemed so real, so down to earth, so lovely, um, and just was willing to share her experience and talk about anything and everything. So I really hope you get that video call. I feel like you will. I really do. We're yeah, gonna, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm putting it out there. We're going to manifest that for you because that is, honestly, that would be awesome um, and, and honestly delightful. Agreed. Um, Tiffany, thank you once again so much for being on the show. It was so wonderful to talk to you and thank you for sharing your experiences, your approach, how you show up on social, how everybody can show up for each other. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And Social Pros listeners, thank you for being here too. Um, please, 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 as we mentioned before, go follow Tiffany. Go keep up with all of the amazing things that she's doing. And thank you for being here week after week with us as well so that we can continue to have these conversations with creators just like Tiffany. We will be back again next week for what we hope is your favorite podcast in the whole wide world, Social Pros. Social Pros.